Elon Musk is doing is finally have a social media. This is the most transparent way of managing a company with the help of GPT-3. And I'm going to squarely point the blame to the boomers. What is your thought on Elon Musk acquiring Twitter? Life, I think, is supposed to be full of different emotions. It's like pulling off a plaster. Anything you want to say to our audience, Alex? I'll be very, very frank and transparent. Okay, um, so today um, I would like to introduce one of our dear friends, Alex, um, and this is going to be a perfect podcast for somebody who is planning to take on adventure of starting a technological startup. Um, we're going to talk about um, issues problems, successes, um, things that you would do differently. And um, hopefully it's going to help our audience on their plunge into this situation. <laughs> How do you feel about it, Alex? Glad to be here. Thank you guys for inviting me. And giving Thank you. We've been planning it for so long and it's finally happening. So it's a pleasure to have you here. And perhaps it would be great if you could give a bit of a background about yourself to our viewers and hopefully tons of subscribers that are coming after this episode. <laughs> no pressure, right? Um, my background is pretty standard, I would guess, for me. Uh, I'm an immigrant from Ukraine. I grew up in London, moved there when I was seven, went to a uh, inner city school, was one of the four white boys in the school. That was an interesting experience. I learned a lot about different cultures. At 19, went to university, studied sports science. That's where I met... Ilya, I guess. Jack. I guess I call you Jack here. Uh, <laughs> I, get, I met Jack. And uh, that was about 13 years ago. Since then, I moved around Europe for a little bit, lived in Croatia. And uh, currently, I am running a startup called Munch. And we are on a mission to democratize website building. So we are on a mission to make it as easy as possible to make a website. So can I ask, how did you get started from sports science into um, programming? Because that's quite a big leap that not many people. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one. So um, I was doing sports science at university by accident. Uh, I was supposed to actually take a gap year. And uh, in England, when you do your A-levels, you have an opportunity to go for a year to travel and to work. And I wanted to do that. But I didn't get four A's. I got four, three A's and a B. And that was disappointing to my parents. And they said that I would be uh, basically working on a building site because I was a failure, yada, yada, yada. I kind of was in a strop as a young teenager. And I went, right, I'm just going to go to uni then. And uh, I went through the universities that I knew of, which happened to be basketball universities that had good basketball teams. And I called up the first one on the list, which was Brunel. And uh, during clearing, they said to me, what do you want to do? And I said, I'm good at sports and I like science. And hence, I done sports science. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really that much thought that went into it, to be honest. Okay, well, at this point, you're still young. So that's understandable. Mm -hmm. But how did the transition into programming happen? When did you first become oh, curious about it? Interesting. So that happened, that happened out of uh, necessity. I um, started learning how to program when I was living in Croatia, I was 21, and I needed to build a website to sell bespoke Baroque furniture. And um, 
I couldn't get a marketing agency to build me what exactly I wanted. And I decided to build it myself. And that put me on a journey to learning how to build websites, applications, NLP apps, deploy them, design them. So uh, this has been a 10 year long journey and really fun one at that. Yeah, you had a previous um, encounter with uh, entrepreneurship, right? In London, when you founded your first company. Mm. Since university, I've been trying to build meaningful businesses. And my first business out of university was actually a uh, bespoke furniture store, for Baroque furniture. And uh, that put me on a journey for building technology. But after a while, I realized it was much more effective to sell services digitally rather than physical products because there's a lot less hassle. And... Um, Three years or four years into the journey of learning technology, I came across and stumbled across a guy in Croatia who was a natural language processing uh, professor. And uh, I learned about sentiment analysis and that blew my mind. It was amazing to think that there is this field of science that's dedicated to studying uh, what people think and extracting those emotions from pieces of text. That was fascinating to me. So um, I uh, learned a lot from Artur and uh, went back to London and decided to pursue a startup that was a personal shopping assistant in 2015. That's where we started. And three years later, we found success in enterprise. And that was an interesting journey in itself. Okay, and then you left London and decided to move to Prague at this point, right? Yeah, about five years ago, I um, I saw that uh, me and my co-founder had different visions and I wanted to do something else. And I decided to give you a call. Mm -hmm. And uh, I called you expecting you to be in Berlin and you weren't, you were in Prague. And the next day I basically flew to Prague to catch up and uh, then realized that there wasn't that much holding me back in London. So it made sense for me to move here, at least temporarily to Prague for a little bit. Yeah. And like two weeks later, you, I was like, well, he's actually here. <laughs> yeah, I packed my bags. It was interesting finding a flat in Prague. Uh, yeah, it was a good. It was you a good mean, experience. was it a challenge to find one or? Actually, it wasn't. It was, uh, I, I found some uh, Facebook groups for properties that were short-term leases. And I messaged uh, this girl and I said to her, look, you're going away for six weeks to travel India. You're giving your room to somebody or you're trying to give your room to somebody to stay. I will wire you the cash now if you promise that the room will still be available in two weeks. And uh, she was a bit shocked by that. We had a FaceTime call and then she was like, okay, you seem normal. And uh, I basically flew into Prague two weeks later to accommodation. Yep. And here we are today right yeah. now. But I think it's uh, time to slowly shift the conversation towards your activities and what you're busy nowadays with. Just mm -hmm. before um, we start the whole conversation about Munch, um, mm -hmm. I wanted you as a startup founder or somebody who has founded a number of businesses, who has been around the VC world and basically things that enable startups to exist, to give a perspective on how startups are being created and explain more about the ecosystem, perhaps talk about stakeholders or how the whole thing happens, like how businesses like Uber, I don't know, Instagram, Tinder, whatever it is, come to exist. Startups 
are an interesting thing. They are basically uh, micro-businesses that are aiming to be giant businesses. And the way that startups usually operate is they get to be giant businesses via technology and uh, breaking through innovation, finding new markets, uh, and solving problems in new and particular ways that haven't been addressed in the past. Um, they're different to traditional SMB businesses because most SMB businesses focus on maybe getting to profitability or uh, providing the best quality product. But startups most of the time have stakeholders, which are VCs, and VCs influence startups to grow hyper fast. And this is why startups uh, have a very, very like common path to success in the modern day. And uh, a lot of weird... Yeah, that's it. What are some of the, like, maybe name several factors that you think are vital to uh, building a successful startup um, from your experience? Maybe like say, um, you know, somebody has an idea. Mm -hmm. They think it's a good idea. They want to test it. They want to go into it. Mm -hmm. What is the process that you personally went through? Like I know you went and worked for a VC fund just mm -hmm. to understand the other side of the story. Mm -hmm. But... Um, let's say somebody's on that journey, what are few things that they need to pay attention to in order to progress to the level of actually getting VCs involved? The key, I would say, is not to fall in love with the solution, but to fall in love with the problem that you're trying to solve. And that, from the very beginning, will shift your behavior um, in a positive way direction. Let me give you an example. So if you're in love with the solution, you're going to keep building the best solution that you imagine uh, can exist. But if you're in love with the problem, you're naturally going to go and investigate the problem more, which forces you to go to speak to people, which forces you to get valid and quick feedback on your ideas. So some of the vital factors that somebody needs to think about before they approach VCs uh, with their idea for funding. How do you build a presentation for a VC before you enter the space? Yeah. And what stage of process should you be at? Should you have something to show? Should you have a, a business plan? What did you approach Credo with that they, um, as far as I remember, they invested mm -hmm. in your startup, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's important to do your research on the investment firm that you're looking to speak to. It's also important to understand how you are going to grow your company from zero to a unicorn. It's important to have something to show for the work that you've done in the prior past, whether it's a product, whether it's traction, whether it's some insights that you I know are hidden in plain sight. This is really important. Um, when you want to speak to investors, it's important to educate them about the things that are hidden in plain sight because that's where most of the great businesses are actually built on is um, insights that were there, but somebody managed to identify them, commercialize them, and turn it into a product. Um, it's a really broad question that you're asking. Um, a lot of this can be done, I would say, a lot of the basic questions can be answered by just going through a marathon of YC Summer School on YouTube. They have great speakers and 90% uh, of everything that you're going to need to do uh, will be answered usually by YC Summer School uh, channel.
Understood. It's a comprehensive answer. Thanks for that. Maybe let's move to the main part of it. So you're the founder of Munch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, prior to um, having a chat when I was getting ready, I went on to open AI and I asked GPT-3 to basically write uh, a bunch of questions that are good mm-hmm. to ask a startup founder. One of them is, what inspired you to start this particular company? Oh, this is super personal. Um, I hate uh, I hated technology before I became a technologist, I guess. Uh, it was very scary and it felt quite elitist at times, uh, not understanding what people in technology are speaking about. So um, I was forced to learn how to build websites. And what inspired me to build Munch was the realization that in 10 years from when I was forced to build websites to now, we have no code tools, but they're still pretty complicated. And a solution that's actually required needs to drop the complexity of building web applications from 100 to 1 and not to 20 or 15 or 10. This needs to be super simple and super accessible to everybody. And I feel I would have loved to have Munch when I was a kid, when I was 15 and selling shoes to my friends. I would have loved to have a Munch site to be able to promo my shoes to schools in that neighborhood. But um, yeah, I sold on eBay instead. Interesting. And so as far as I understand, the main problem that you're solving is basically eradicating the need for having multiple tools to do one simple thing is represent yourself online in a way, right? That's right. So usually when you are trying to build something um, for the web, the process goes like you go and find a template, you customize that template and you're done. But soon you realize that you want to change a few things. And that's very difficult. You need to speak to a designer or a developer or both most of the time and implement those changes. What we want to do is we want to give 100% control to the average person to be able to build anything from a landing page to a blog, to a shop, to an invite for a podcast, to a promo for their food truck. There is so many different things that people can do. It's just the technology is too difficult right now for people to truly express themselves and be authentic online. Do you think technology is too difficult in people's perception as well? So is that still a perception thing that you have to change even though you're giving them this tool? Are you finding it hard that people um, expect it to be harder than it is? Great question. So um, what I've learned in the last year um, speaking to customers and working on Munch is even if you give people the best tooling in the world and make it completely accessible, free and in their pocket, Unless you change the perception of what a website is, it's going to be very hard for us to acquire mass users because everybody, as far as I know, have tried to build a website. Everybody in this room, I'm pretty sure, has at one point in time tried to do something like this. And they will have a really negative feeling of how easy or hard it is. And um, we have to re-educate the market and show that websites can be like social media posts lightweight, disposable, and no stress. Currently, websites feel more like a banquet, like a wedding that you've been invited to that you didn't really want to go to. There's a lot of faff. There's a lot of things that you have to do when you really just wanted to like get a bite. So um, yeah, I think the perception needs to change. And we are on a mission to change the perception by literally showing people examples of cool little munches that people have made in under 15 minutes. 
Yeah, uh, but this uh, link to Munch is going to be in the description, so people can oh, check it sure. out. Oh, for sure. I want to ask you a question. Can share some, you know, customer stories? Yeah, sure. So um, one of my favorite customer stories came from four weeks ago. It was a uh, another founder of a great company. I'm not affiliated, so I'm going to plug a company called Veed, V-E-E-D. It's a great online solution for videos. And randomly... The founder of that company wanted to do something great for the neighborhood. So he bought about 500 Christmas trees and he wanted to deliver them to people, to households in the neighborhood. So he made a munch to advertise that people can come and collect the Christmas tree. And then he printed a bunch of QR codes that led to the munch and flyed the neighborhood. And in about five days, he delivered all the Christmas trees to the neighborhood. And that's like a great example of something that in the past wouldn't happen because it would take too much effort to build something like a microsite to give away free Christmas trees. Whereas now you can do this in like 10, 15 minutes max. And there's many opportunities to engage and speak to people and share happiness or monetize your product. You had a question? No, no, go for it. Um, no, I was just curious. So did this founder, he or she, get in touch with you after doing this munch or you just noticed it somewhere on the back end that it happened? And Yeah, we saw a spike in traffic. Um, we saw a spike in traffic and we found out that the spike came from uh, this munch and this munch was built by somebody who gave us actually really good feedback because we run customer satisfaction surveys after everybody signs up and... Um, this particular individual gave very insightful feedback. So that led us to follow up on the call and we found out what he does. And uh, it was really nice to speak to somebody who has built a tool that we use actually on a weekly basis. Yeah, I think it's a very important point that a lot of times you try to perfect the tool and the actual feedback is what matters most, right? In terms right. of startups. Majority of the time, uh, being able to iterate and hear what the customers are saying to you is the key to success. Like, for example, with us, we launched three, four months ago, and um, we clearly hear that the customer base demands a desktop editor. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've been working night and day for the last six weeks to deliver one, and hopefully we'll have one shipped in two, three weeks. Sweet. Sounds great. What are the expectations of starting a startup and the reality of it? Like, was there any vivid difference between, like, you know, you imagined, ah, oh, I'm going to be a startup founder and out of nowhere you are. And, and you're slowly finding out things that you couldn't even predict before. Yeah, um, great question. So I would say that when every single startup founder starts out, they have the pink glasses on, that the things that are difficult, that they think are difficult, usually turn out to be the easy part. And the things that uh, most founders assume would come naturally and be easy is actually the most hardest part. So um, a lot of people think building the product is the most difficult part. I would argue that maybe getting people's attention is way harder than building a product. Um, challenges of people management is something that's overlooked often by founders who tend to not have much managerial corporate experience. That's something of uh, to pay attention to if you're like a young founder and you're looking to build a team. Make sure that you have mentors who have been managers before because you shouldn't overlook management. That's a painful lesson learned that it does serve a very important function in a company. 
and um, you shouldn't project your own drive as a founder to the rest of your team because that rarely happens and it's important to respect the boundaries between um, people who work for a company and people who want to basically form a company and grow a company to massive scale. Yeah, because I guess your motivation is completely different to theirs, right? Most of the time it is, yes. And the amount of sacrifices that you're going to willing to do is very different. So as a founder, it's important to recognize that no one's going to have the same motivation as you. And uh, you need to build a team around you to support the company and to be able to run without you being present, more importantly. Okay, so it's about building a working structure. Building an organization, yeah. yeah, building a proper organization. In the VC world, this is called a bus factor. And the bus factor is, let's say your company is five people and you all as a team decide to go to Italy on holiday. Your plane crashes, your company is dead. dead. That's a bus factor. That's a very high bus factor. If your company employs 100 people and five people are gone, your company will still operate. And this is something that investors consider when investing into companies because if a key employee leaves or something happens to them, how much would that impact the company overall? Cool. So it's important to have a bus factor that's pretty uh, high because you want a lot of buses to go out simultaneously to underroute your company. Um, did you find it challenging um, delegating work to your team members or has that come naturally to you? I still find it challenging. I find delegation very, very difficult because um, I've never managed big teams myself and I tend to manage through example and hope that people are going to uh, execute the best that they can following the example but often it's important to um, clearly outline the domain in which you're working in the boundaries of the project and the exact deliverables um, if you don't do that, then uh, management is basically out the window. I find that hard to do. And uh, since we've hired some senior people, I have now found that there's a lot that we messed up on in the past in terms of how to manage and how to properly set goals and expectations and KPIs for a happy and performing team. How long have you, how long ago have you started Munch? Working on it? I started working on it with you in our living room just before my birthday, and I remember the moment that we said, right, enough talking, let's start doing. And uh, started working on it, that was about 26 months ago. We followed a very uh, unusual journey of Munch. And it's funny because uh, in hindsight, we should have released three months into the project, but we took our sweet time rebuilding the platform because I have a vision that needs to be delivered to the world. And we're not just optimizing a process in a small business or a big corporation. We're trying to build something that's new and novel and hasn't been done before. A lot of people told me from the very beginning that it's impossible to build a website builder from the phone. I think we've proven that to be not true. And now we are in the phase of re-educating the market that everybody on this blue planet of ours deserves to have better tooling to be authentic online. And I'm the live converse, uh, confirmation for that because um, 
To give you an example, I remember I was in touch with Alex when I was in Amsterdam and I met a group of creators that were basically just hanging around filming videos um, and we decided to do this munch for this restaurant. So basically it took us literally three minutes and the guys were so impressed. They were like, oh, we've been looking for a website builder for two weeks already. And I was like, you know, wow. Um, would you say user experience and putting more focus on user experience uh, increases chances of startup user experience is really interesting it's uh, it's really important um, it needs to be done from the early stages of a company because uh, for my first startup I learned that you can't overlook designers you can't just put a button to the left of the page and expect that to be understood by the masses it's important to test your theses your designs this is why in our company we have a person called Jake who um, job is to run experiments with users, we have Jake show prototypes, mock-ups to batches of users between 30 and 50 people, and they give feedback. And unless their feedback satisfies our pass criteria, that feature doesn't get pushed to the roadmap to be implemented. So um, user experience is very important, and it's very important to approach user experience scientifically and uh, do it consistently. It shouldn't just be done like speaking to 10 people and you checked off your user experience box. It's an ongoing activity. Completely agree with that. Perhaps it's the time to move forward. And my next big theme for you is what is your vision of the new era of internet? Like we're seeing things like Web 3.0 pop up and uh, Chat GPT 3 yeah, and all of that. Are you skeptical? Are you excited? Like, how do you feel about it? This Christmas break has been an interesting one. So um, we are living in an amazing time right now. Um, I'm sure the viewers have heard about OpenAI or Chat GPT. But it's important to realize that this technology that is being democratized is going to drop the cost of intellectual labor practically to zero. What I mean by that is, is that accountants, middle management, event planners, social media, schedulers, recipe writers, content creators, all of these professions are going to be affected because now we have systems that are able to replicate the output of specific professionals to a degree which is good enough to replace, I would say, the average professional in that field. And um, this is going to come very quickly. I think that unemployment is going to go even higher in the next two years. And it's kind of ironic that people thought that automation is going to replace people working in cafes and shops, but it's actually replaced the middle management and the middle layer of corporations and the most un like unlikely category, which is artists. Uh, I don't think anybody saw it coming that AI would be uh, competing with digital artists anytime soon. And we kind of expected AI to be competing with people working in McDonald's. But uh, I think that's been proven to be otherwise. 
Um, from my point of view, though, right, these people already have an interest in a subject, somebody who is an artist, somebody who is doing a um, recipe, like you said, right? Um, these people are already have a sort of niche where they work, right? And they have exposure. Doesn't that make it m easier for them to create the process of or building the platform that they already have using these tools and just saying, hey, you know, instead of me writing one recipe a day, I can write 10 recipes with the help of um, OpenAI. Or at least, uh, like, um, I need a blog post picture, for example, right? Five seconds, five minutes, you have chosen your picture, you upload it. So it makes the whole process sort of bottleneck-free and available to people, right? So, like, from my point of view where I'm sitting, it's an explosion of creativity and testing different ideas, right? If if that's the avenue that people go down to, what do you think of that? I would agree for the most part that this breakthrough in innovation like DALI, ChatGPT, and all of the models by Google and the likes, they're making it easier for you to create things that before you would have to spend hours creating, such as a picture, such as content, such as a plan for social media. And yes, you're right. It opens up a lot of opportunities for people to be more effective and more creative. But in the long run, from my point of view, the quality of competition is going to go from five to 50. Mm -hmm. Because everybody can make 10 now at a drop of a hat. And like, I mean, like, quality of content at level 10 at a drop of a hat, then naturally the competition is going to go even higher and that's where it's going to be hard to compete because yeah. there will be limitations of scale that some companies have, such as, for example, before you didn't have the team to write your content, now you can replace that. You didn't have a team to write your schedule, now you can replace that but you can never replace a budget of like a million for a video. And that's where things are going to become really difficult for the small fish in the future, because ultimately when everything is democratized and fully accessible, the barriers to entry are going to be even higher than before because there's less opportunity for anybody to find an edge. So what you're suggesting is that the market of technology is greatly oversaturating this reality, basically. I mean, yeah, I think that technology has enabled people to be massively creative. Like, if you think about it, before Photoshop, to design a cover for a magazine, that would have taken months. Forever. You would have had to put a picture, then get somebody to print the typography, then you had to lay down the typography, then you had to take a picture of that picture, then you had to sign off on it, then you had to print some more pictures if you wanted different sizes. Now you just do it in Photoshop and it takes a few minutes. The, the labor, the intellectual labor is dropping to zero. And uh, that was a thing that people could use back in a day or still now to um, differentiate. But when everybody has access to identical tooling, I think there'll be less opportunities for people to differentiate and it will be more difficult for people to get to massive scale. But that's looking at the problem from a VC and a empire building perspective. If you want to build a lifestyle business, I think it's easier than it's ever been before. If you want to not work on a nine to five and do a dead ass job and have personal freedom, I think it's easier than ever before to start a micro business or an SMB. 
And uh, I think a lot of people are going to be forced to do this. Um, there's a flip side of the coin, obviously. There's pros and cons to everything. Yeah. Um, can you already foresee um, the technology that you are using for Munch as well? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we are in the process of integrating uh, AI APIs to allow people to write the content and style the Munch using AI. So what we've learned is even if you give the best tooling in the world to people, you still need to hold their hand during the process of creation. Maybe 1% of the population is comfortable creating things by themselves. And uh, for majority of the people, there needs to be guidance. So uh, for us, OpenAI serves the purpose of understanding the intention of the person. So you can say, make me a munch to promote my podcast. And you can say, my podcast is held in Prague. It's at this time, it features these guests and the AI would literally write all of the copy for your munch to do with that particular thing that you said you wanted to do. Same goes for style. You can say, make it look serious, make it look funky, make it look like a bubblegum wrapper. And the AI will give you a color composition, fonts, spacing. So like uh, we've spent two years making it easier for anybody to customize the websites. And now what we're doing is that we are getting the AI to customize the websites on behalf of the people Uh, so the people still have an opportunity to add the human touch at the end of the day. Uh, but that's the journey that we have with Munch and AI APIs. I have seen it and it works like magic. You literally like can preview products 10 at a time and choose the one that you like. Exactly. I was about to say that for those people who is going to be looking at this video somewhere in socials and thinking, ah, it's coming like maybe in two, five, three years, whatever. Like we are the live witnesses and live confirmation that we have seen it on the back end. It works perfectly fine. Um, and I assume it's going to take just some time to deploy and make it available That's to the, the general public. Yeah. Let's not make it a plug for Munch uh, overall, but... Uh, <laughs> Honestly, like there is better tools out there. I'll be very, I'll be very, very frank and transparent because this is what I am. And if you want to build one website and you don't want to touch it ever again, use Squarespace. Honestly, just use something like a good standalone website builder. If you want to just build one thing and never touch it again. But if you want to build many things and communicate with your audiences personally, and easily and authentically, you'll be hard pressed to find a better solution than Munch. But it depends on the use case, of course. I mean, yeah, if you're creating a lot of microsites to test different audiences, right? Yep. Um, it's probably the quickest way to release um, 10 pages and promote them and see how much traffic you're getting conversion from each one of them. Yeah, it's important also to think that um, There is social media activity for acquiring customers and then there's also activity for customer satisfaction. And uh, that is a great use case for us because basically I think that for you to build brand trust and brand value with the end user, you need to communicate with them authentically and you need to communicate with them across five to seven different touch points. And acquiring customers is one problem. Activating growing and getting referrals from your existing customers is a different problem. And Munch really excels at the ability for you to make a page for one person, 10 people or 100 people. 
uh, that's where I see it ultimately being positioned as a communication tool in the future. What are some of the tools that you are most excited about within the next five years? I know this is on the top of your head, but... Mm -hmm. ChatGPT definitely is one of them. The So what I mean by ChatGPT is ChatGPT is not really different to any other big models that are out there. It's just that it's been optimized to work with you like you would with a remote worker, like a... Um, intern or a assistant or a consultant. The other tools are all very specific and specialized for use cases. So you have to know how to integrate them. And I'm less excited about those ones. I'm more excited about the general purpose solutions. What other tools I'm excited about? Um, I'm not too excited about social media, but I am interested in seeing how the social media space is going to evolve going forward with the rise of short form videos as the main form of content and digestion. It's interesting to see how the governments will cope with TikTok, how Google will cope with TikTok and ChatGPT. Because and a mixture of that with deep fakes, right? And a mixture of that with deep fakes, <laughs> and then just like a cherry on top of that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot, and uh, it's exciting times. I think that we're gonna have maybe a few big incumbents being built in the next decade. It's gonna be exciting. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned that governments will have to deal with TikTok. Can you explain that part? Well, the thing about TikTok is that. And TikTok is not the only culprit. WhatsApp, Facebook, all of the social media companies that are around today, they make money by advertising content to you. So you as the end user, you are literally the product that's being sold to advertisers. To make that business model more efficient, you need to collect data on people. TikTok, Instagram, Google, all of these companies work based on advertising revenue models. They need to collect data to be able to show you the best quality and best engaging adverts. The flip side, the good thing is that your adverts that you see are usually better. They're more fitted to you. You're not going to get like an advert for rock climbing if you are not a rock climber. But the negative aspect of this is that your data is being leaked all over the place and um, it can be used against you and uh, governments I'm not sure have the capability to handle this somehow I mean the European government has tried to implement GDPR and it has a lot of consequences to how businesses operate but ultimately I think that as long as the policy makers are just people who are out of touch with society and technology. They will never be able to come up with policies to control these type of organizations or systems. I think that uh, we need an overhaul politically of fresh blood uh, to be able to deal with these situations. This is super cool. I'm just thinking to myself, it's going to be some kind of international, I don't know, technology overhaul corporation or some kind of like you know the body that connects the two but i'm pretty sure those bodies exist within the politics of the european union most probably in the u.s as well it's like all over the world but you're saying that you're seeing a problem that they're not very well connected to the real like impact of, of existing businesses already like we've seen the interviews with zook and the state 
the kind of questions that the Senate asks clearly demonstrates that the policymakers do not have a good enough understanding of technology to be able to create meaningful policies. If I was the leader of the world, I would create a cross-country party that would be pretty much run by, run by young people. And uh, I think that's the better approach uh, instead of having these political parties be siloed in different countries. I think a lot of people are global today. And I think it's time for actual global political parties to rise. So basically regulation of this whole space is not being on par with what is happening in it. I mean, you can try to regulate it in a geography like America or England or France or Germany, but as long as there's going to be a country that's not going to deal or enforce any regulation, there's always going to be an opportunity for people to negate any regulation that's ever done by anybody. So I think it's important for people to unify across borders and countries and build policies that are actually implementable on a global scale. I mean, it's a little scary for most people to think that like there's going to be a party that's a political party of like multiple countries. But I think that uh, ideologically, they're already very much aligned, the left and the right. I think someone just needs to put a label to it and empower their youth to take charge of the future. Because unfortunately, our planet is being destroyed. We are on the cliff of basically having apocalypse in the next 30, 40 years. And ultimately, this is happening. And I'm going to squarely point the blame to the boomers. <laughs> all of them. It's all their fault. <laughs> it's all the boomers' fault. No, we're uh, laughing, right? We're no, laughing no, at no, it. We're but... laughing, but we have to deal with the consequences <laughs> of our parents and grandparents. And ultimately, they had lives that a family could be supported on a person working in a factory. In what country in the world today can a person work in a Ford factory or any factory and support a family of two people comfortably? Germany. In Germany? Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah? Interesting. So a person in Germany can actually like uh, work in like manufacturing and still have enough money to pay for their spouse and a kid? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's not probably not a massive amount, but like it's regulated. by Like 40, 50K factory workers get in Germany? 40, yeah. Cool. Depends on your position, but they have quite good standards. Yeah. Okay, so um, my next question is, could you name tools like a toolkit that's a must for every founder out there? Yep. Um, first thing is, I would say use Notion. Notion uh, to document your ideas and plans. Uh, as your team grows, you're most likely going to move away from Notion and use something else. Uh, then it's important to have some kind of a platform to use to be able to test messaging and uh, communicate with your target market. This can be a social media app as a channel and you can communicate on that social media app or this can be a standalone website or microsite. Then you're going to need a place of sourcing your leads. It's really important for you to think about other ways where you can find leads to speak to. Um, and it's important to answer these questions in the very beginning. Then I would say, so Notion, some kind of a website builder or a communication channel with your target customers, a place to source your leads. And the final one, number five, I would say, Use Slack to communicate with your team. It makes life a lot easier and uh, you can work asynchronously if you are 
remote team. Yeah. I wanted to quickly comment on all of those points. So one thing is I was using Notion today Mm -hmm. and they really released like this beta update uh, for AI Mm -hmm. integration. So I'm very excited to see what they're bringing on board. Apparently it's like text um, enrichment and stuff like that, but I'm pretty sure many more things to come. When do you think is the right time to think about growth hacking when starting a company? Mm -hmm. Uh, growth hacking usually is a good time to think about it when you have something to sell or something to offer. Um, but it can start earlier. So, for example, some companies build a waiting list of 50,000 people before they even start building the product. So uh, you can do growth hacking even before you have a product. But traditionally, people start thinking about it when they have something to sell or promote. I would say that the sooner you think about it, the better. And uh, a lesson learned for me is that I think we should have built a bigger and broader waiting list um, earlier on in our company's journey than uh, starting this out later. Um, Some founders suffer from fear of releasing their product. Mm -hmm. Um, From your personal experience, uh, what would be some tips that you could give them maybe like a heartfelt little uh, comment that will push them through (laughs) it's like pulling off a plaster you have to do it it's not as bad as you imagined it would be and it's important to remember two things nobody cares about you or what you've done and if it sucks no one's going to remember and that goes the same for even the way you dress I think people care way too much about what other people think of them and they worry about what the judgment's going to be like. But ultimately, most people are too busy living their own life to really consider passing harsh judgment. Uh, And the second piece of advice I would say, get a co-founder or somebody who's really close to you who is polar opposite and is able to ground you if you have tendencies to go on a tangent or go too deeply into a certain... Uh, domain or expertise in the company so try to build a balanced team as much as possible find a founder who balances you yeah classic yeah i think we relate in a way (laughs) in this domain as you mentioned um what is the hardest decision you made as a company founder and startup founder so far firing people is definitely the hardest decision like starting to let people go who you put on board sucks it really like takes a lot out of you because you form a personal and good working relationship with people and sometimes it just doesn't work out because of the financial situation of maybe the company or maybe it's to do with other issues but ultimately firing people is very very difficult and uh, challenging challenging because you have to balance the longevity of the whole company versus the relationship that you have with particular people in the company. And uh, sometimes you have to decide of the least of the two evils. That's life, my friend, as they say. <laughs> that was one. Um, and I think that's not very insightful. Like firing always sucks. Obviously, yeah. Um, something a little bit more interesting, more difficult decision. From your personal development, maybe. 
Well, for me, like my personal development decisions are never difficult because I have a pretty clear track that I'm following personally. So it's all fairly straightforward there. Um, difficult decisions usually come from relationships and dealing with people, whether it's professionally or personally. Um, personally, I haven't had many difficult decisions professionally building out the organization and balancing out the cultures is something very important. And it's really important to understand what kind of culture you are fostering in the organization and how that is going to be impacted by new people that you bring in on board. Um, that's an oversight that I think a lot of founders have, which is not understanding what kind of culture they're maybe building or unintentionally building and uh, how that is going to be affected by future hires. Um, is right now a difficult time to raise capital? Right now is a very difficult time to raise capital because we are on the brink of a global downturn. Uh, we should have had uh, this actually happen two years before when COVID just started, but uh, the markets are sometimes illogical and uh, we still had a boom going into COVID because a lot of people were forced to do online when they were doing it offline. Uh, since the world has come back to more or less normality, the hype is gone and uh, it's clear that the economic situation of the world isn't particularly great. And uh, now the focus for fundraising needs to be either you have already traction or you are profitable and you are basically in cockroach mode, meaning that uh, you are self-sustaining and you do not need any external fundraising. You see like the investment cycles go through loops and cycles and uh, we've had a boom for the last 10 years and now we're going to have a bust for the next five years, I predict. But it's okay. This gives us opportunity to sort the wheat from the chaff, figure out what companies actually Makes sense. And I think as Elon Musk is proving that you don't need seven and a half thousand people to run a, a feed of comments at the end of the day. Um, I think the boom swung to the right end of its pendulum and it's now swinging back. Um, do you think, what is your thought on Elon Musk acquiring Twitter? What's your comment? Do you think it's going to be a better company after? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really interesting how for me, what Elon Musk is doing is so different because he is actually speaking to people. Like, what other company does the CEO or the person who is in charge actually speak to the people? Does Zook ask the people of Facebook what Facebook should be like? Does Sergey and Larry, do they ask what's the future direction of XYZ? Nobody asks. And I think it's really interesting how nobody's talking about the fact that this is the most transparent way of managing a company. And uh, it's just flying over people's heads. And I think it's really, really interesting how Elon Musk is taking the approach of I'm just going to speak to the masses and uh, make decisions out in the open. And I think it requires a lot of balls and a lot of courage um, because people tend to be brutal especially when they're anonymous and behind the keyboard, people tend to be extra brutal. So it's an interesting experiment that he's running. And I'm glad that we finally have a social media app that sounds like it's kind of listening to its users. Okay, so he's like, um, 
um, changed his approach. He's not afraid to make mistakes and that kind of... I mean, it's it's interesting because I think that he's never been really afraid to make mistakes because he's made many mistakes in the past and like estimated timelines completely incorrectly, which a lot of people like hold him to. But I think overall, he's delivered massive amounts of value to the world. And um, the way that he's running this organization is fascinating. The fact that he has an open dialogue with the end users in a public medium. This is like, you know... Back in the day, in the Roman times, people would go to like the Senate to debate and have a town square. And I feel that Elon is trying to do the same, but digitally. He's trying to build the digital Senate, which is Twitter, where people have actual meaningful debates and conversations about things. Good. Makes sense. As you suggested, the question, um, what are the top side hustles anyone can take on to in 2023? Yeah, so uh, as mentioned before, I think that making a living is going to be more difficult in a traditional way going forward into the future. So my top five side hustles would be firstly, focus on upskilling yourself and focus on acquiring skills that people are willing to pay money for. Uh, and then marketing that through traditional media. That's the first side hustle. And it's easier than ever before to do this because there's so much information and courses and books and videos and tutorials and guides about how to upskill yourself. Uh, so investing in yourself is always, I would say, number one advice that I would give anybody because people can take your money, people can take your car, people can take your family, but they can never really take your learnings. And I think that is something that is really valuable. Number two, I would say look at which fields you wouldn't mind working in and start seeing where you could do arbitrage using AI. What I mean by that is arbitrage is when you know, for example, Coca-Cola is 50 cents in one shop and people are buying it for one pound, then you can buy the Coca-Cola for 50 cents and sell it to the market for one pound, making 50% profit. You could do the same with knowledge. You can uh, help businesses with acquiring customers. So if I was a young, hungry student, I would literally just approach businesses in my area and give them ways that they could grow their business. And uh, you only need 10 people paying you a K a month to have 10K a month. And that's minus taxes, minus taxes, <laughs> minus everything. But obviously, like after working in an organization or corporate, you'll be on like what 100 plus K a year only after three, five years. Whereas a lot of people are doing it on their own, just marketing themselves. Um, they could sell not only copyright services, they could sell services such as acquisition of customers. So for example, if I wanted to work with this podcast studio, I would send them an email and say, hey, I am uh, willing to generate leads for you. How can we work on a revenue split basis? Let me market this. And what I would do is I would literally just find people who may be interested in doing podcasts, get GPT to write me a compelling personalized letter for every single one of those leads and start a communication and start doing this. This is not difficult. It just requires persistence and belief that ultimately you're going to push through it. Um, yeah, that wasn't really five quick tips. That was a big monologue, but I guess... It was a good one, but let me have a follow-up question. So you're saying you would start by finding people who would have interest in doing a podcast, right? Mm -hmm. Or like, I don't know, maybe they need this content for their marketing purposes, whatever. 
How would you leverage publicly available sources to do that? Because okay. lead generation is one thing, right? Mm-hmm. But the, this is how you would you would do business with this podcast studio, for example. But how about using publicly available sources to find people who might have interest? Super important. This is one of the key things in the toolkit that founders should be looking at, which is the customer acquisition side. So um, I would go and look at social media profiles uh, of people who you think would benefit from having a podcast. Um, they're easy to find once you start thinking about this and ideating. Just put like a whiteboard session together with you or by yourself and start throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, for customer acquisition, there's many different tools. You could use SEO ranking websites to indicate where people are coming from for particular competitors and then seeing the competitors and where those people are coming from. Uh, you could also use scraping technologies to create little bots to collect data from uh, yellow pages or open directories or even Google um, or social media marketing uh, monitoring companies like Social Blade, for example, is very good if you want to know statistics about people who have certain reach, who are beginning to trend, who are trending in particular domains. Um, those are good places to look for customers and inspiration. Yeah, I just want to quickly add that one of the ways to do so is to look at the references, as you mentioned. So basically, pretty much, if we're taking um, Podcast Studio as an example, look at the other ones, look at their existing client base, it pretty much, you know, shortlist those people and or companies or organizations and tell yourself, okay, they have this one thing in common and pretty much start shortlisting the common features they have and going after this like ICP, right? Which will be your ideal customer profile in a way. That's right. So like uh, do some research, start uh, putting things on paper and then categorize them and find commonality. Um, It's really important to find commonality in things. Anything you want to say to our audience, Alex? This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) It's too much pressure, come on. No, maybe, Alex, something that you'd like to say yourself Um, or, like, on uh, public record. Yeah, so, like, (laughs) if you want to be happier in life, pay less attention to what everybody else is saying. That's my only golden nuggets of advice that I have after living 33 years on this blue planet of ours, which is people's opinions are important, but not as important as you probably think they are. And the less you care about people's opinions and the more you do things that make you happy, the more satisfied you will be in life. Don't live a life of your parents. Don't live a life of your colleagues. Don't live a life that's been imposed on you. Do what you want to do and deal with the consequences because you're going to make mistakes and uh, that's part of life. You're not supposed to be happy all the time. That would be like a painting that's black and white. Life, I think, is supposed to be full of different emotions, happiness, sadness, regret, excitement, and that's how you have a full experience, I think. Great. You should have joined the Beatles (laughs) when you had the chance, my friend. Well, maybe in afterlife I can meet (laughs) with John. You still can form one with the help of GPT-3. Exactly. (laughs) Let it be. Let Let it be. (laughs) The dung Beatles. (laughs) Anyways, Alex, it was a genuine pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, We'll be happy to have you, I don't know, in a couple of months or a year's time. I don't know. Um, But now that we know you're moving to a different country, wishing you a lot of 
luck, settlement, success, and good Thank luck. You. Happiness, you. man. Happiness. It's always, been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Always happy to see you, bro. Happy to see you guys.